by revival. I don't mean the refreshings of God, the outpourings of God, which he does do on his church every now and then. He comes with power and he demonstrates power. And I mean, I can tell of stories, and I'm sure you can, of when God has moved on power in the church and people have fell down under his power. But I'm talking about a revival where the kingdom comes and transforms society. I'm talking about the kind of revival we had in Wales where the pubs were empty and the miners stopped swearing and then the donkeys didn't know what to do because they were told only to go with swear words. I'm talking about that kind of transformation in society where rules and policies and governments are changed. I believe that that is what is coming. And that is why we are going through such rigorous shaking, both in the church and in the world, because God is loosening us of those things that have become false dependencies. And I just, uh, it's where's Stefani? She, do you want to come, Stefani? She had a uh, we, we just had this amazing prayer time, and uh, I, I felt something, and I just texted Stefani, and she, she texted me back and said, you won't believe what I just heard. So why don't you come and share what God's been saying to you as well? Um, thanks, Helen. And there's just been such an urge in the Spirit to intercess and to pray for the body of Christ, and you might have experienced that as well. And as part of that intercession, um, the Lord showed me a picture. At first, I, I kind of heard the words, you know, it's, 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 about bl- it's black or it's white, it's not gray anymore. And um, I just felt the Lord saying, you know, gray is, is I don't accept gray, and gray is not appealing to the world anymore either. And then he showed me this picture of a pot of white paint. And um, I believe he said, Forest Town, you are one of my pots of white paint. And the pot has been shaken and is pure brilliant white. And he didn't give me the meaning of the white. And I kind of thought, Lord, why white? And um, then he asked me, well, why white? What does white do? What does white paint do? And um, I, I'm not much of a painter or an artist, but... Um, when, whenever I've used white, when I've done a painting or a flower, mostly children's stuff, and you use white, white um, brings the, the painting to life. And I want you to prepare for I am, I would like to dip my finger into that pot of paint. And then behind this pot of paint, I saw this painting, and I believe it was a painting of the world. And I saw the Lord dipping his finger into this white paint and starting to to put the white paint all over this painting, and this painting came to life. And um, there were four things that I felt the Lord wanted to emphasize, Um, and one was that I am the painter. It will be my finger that will be dipped into this pot. You won't be able to splash yourself against that painting and make a difference. It will be my finger. It will be my masterpiece. And then the second thing was that I really feel the Lord wants to say, You are a pot of white paint. You have been shaken. I have taught you many things. And I want you to know your purpose. You are a pot of white paint. And um, the other one was the the placing. I believe there is a placing of people all over this painting, all over churches placed into this picture. And the Lord creating his masterpiece. And then the fourth thing really is um, a time of knowing. And not a time of wandering and waving, but a time of knowing. Knowing who I am, who he is. Knowing who he is. He is the painter. Knowing who you are. What is your calling? What is your purpose? What has he taught you? Stand firm. Knowing my word. And and standing in prayer and intercession. 
And then after that, two, I think three days after that, I heard um, a talk on Christian radio, um, and there was a spiritual leader, and she, um, they gave her the opportunity to talk about anything she wanted to. And she said the one thing that was really pressed on her heart is revival. And she's been visiting churches all over the world, and many churches have been shaken. And, um, and now many churches are urged into a time of intercession and standing firm and um, waiting in the revival. And many believe that it will be, as Helen said, it will be a move of his righteousness and a move of his manifest power amongst us. I just feel so excited by what you're saying, and it really does, does stir me. And when you look at revivals in history, and in, indeed in the, in the Bible, in this example in Colossae, where God moved so wonderfully by his Spirit, there always seems to be these two ingredients that come when there's revival. And the first one is that the gospel is preached. And the second one is that the power of the Spirit is poured out. And I believe that as the gospel was preached in Colossae, we saw these amazing things that began to happen. Because it says there in verse 5, it says, Some time ago you heard about the hope in the word of the truth, the gospel. And verse 7, it happened as you learned the gospel from Epaphras. And what can, uh, I want to ask us, what can we learn from the kind of gospel that was preached that led to revival? Because not all Gospels lead to revival. And I just want us to just look at some things this morning that I believe God wants to birth and that he's already putting into the life of this church, that it is the Gospel that begins to birth the seeds of his transforming power in in this community. God wants to put you and me on the landscape of this community. He wants us to be that transforming white paint that brings something of his depth and his color and his life and vitality. So the first thing I want to say about the gospel that was preached to the Colossian church is that it was gospel. And we know that gospel means good news. It was good news that was preached. And, uh, you know, anything that teaches that you can have salvation by cleverness or by good philosophies or by doing some good deeds, I want to say that's bad news. That's not good news. And why is it bad news? It's bad news because we'll never be clever enough. We'll never be religious enough. We'll never do enough good deeds. When is enough enough to earn your salvation? But there's good news about this wonderful gospel that was preached in Colossae and that's preached to us is it's good news because all that we need for salvation has been provided in and by Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can have to do to earn that salvation. It is good news. It is all we have to do is to receive the gospel that Jesus died for us and we can have relationship with the Father. It is that simple. It is good news. So that's the first kind of thing that brings revival, good news. And the second kind of gospel that was preached to the Colossians is that the gospel was a very clear and definite message. It says, you learned the gospel. And uh, I, I think that sometimes we have this saying that goes around that the gospel can be caught rather than taught, as if it's some vague emotional attitude, and if you sit there, you'll somehow assimilate the gospel. But it says there that the gospel was taught to them by Epaphras. And I'm sure even as Paul wrote his letters, there was more teaching that happened. 
So the gospel is a definite message with definite content and information. And uh, I believe that it was foundational for a church like Colossae to move into revival because they had this message taught. They had assimilated it into them. And I believe that those who gave themselves to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel never tired of it. They never became so over-familiar with it that they took it for granted or they began to despise it. And I think that they were desperate that it would never be robbed from those that they gave it to, that they would not become, oh, gospel, we've heard the gospel so many times. No, the gospel was so transformational, was so powerful that they never tired of preaching it and holding it up. And I love what uh, Michael Eaton said to us a year ago when he came. Remember when he spoke out of Romans? He said that we placard Christ before you. It's like we hold Christ up in a big banner. He never tired of presenting this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ to the people. I found this, uh, well, Andrew showed me this amazing quote, which I thought was very interesting because um, it's by a guy called uh, Fip, which is an interesting name. Oh, Philip is a is a typo. Philip <laughs> Philip Greenslade. I thought that was an interesting name. I should have checked it out with you. Um, it, it just said this. He said, under pressure from a congregation to be practical or relevant, we can lapse into moralism. At the end of some people's sermons, there are always three steps that you must do five keys that you must get hold of, and too often, however well-meaning, the gospel is reduced to techniques of self-improvement. Why? Because we don't trust that simply preaching the word, the gospel is going to do anything. Michael Horton said recently that the cry for more practical preaching is the call of the old Adam for more self-help. We may dress it up and call it application, but it is, in effect, moralism and legalism by any other name. And I want to say that's very powerful because I want to say I was under that for 15 years, giving people lots of principles to live by. I want to say it brings people under condemnation and moralism and legalism. When we preach the gospel and the power of God comes by his spirit, he convicts us how to be a good mother. He convicts us how to be a good father. He convicts us how to be good wives and husbands. And you know what? When we teach into marriage, when we teach into parenting, and we come with a premise and an underlying thing of this is the gospel, it's a very different way that that is taught. I think we should teach into parenting. I think we should teach into marriage, but not give people lots of principles that bog them down and make them feel that they are under rules. God wants to breathe life into all of those things, and we need to empower people. So Paul is so eager when he's writing this letter to remind the Colossians that the joy and the liberty and the love that they live in is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the third thing about this gospel, so the first thing I said was that it was good news. The second thing is that, uh, what did I say? The second thing, it was a clear, definite message that we can learn. But the third thing is that it was focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gospel that focused on Jesus. I think that today we have so many distortions of the gospel and false gospels that are preached. Some gospels focus on my self-fulfillment and my self-actualization. Some gospels are social gospels where Jesus is the activist for some social cause. 
Some Gospels are mystical and all about my experience in the Spirit and very little to do with Jesus. And I want to say the Gospel that brought revival was about Jesus. The Gospel that brought revival was about Jesus. Jesus was placarded before them, not anything else. And his cross and him crucified and his resurrection is what we preach and that's what changes lives. Jesus needs to fill the windscreen of our lives and our message. Let Jesus fill your windscreen. And then this is the point I really want to get to this morning, that it says that this gospel that was preached was about hope. It says in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, And it also says you heard about this hope in the word of truth. The gospel came and it brought hope to these people. I have this wonderful quote which I've been thinking about so much. And it says, faith, love, and hope, which have been mentioned in this book in Colossians, are the secrets of being in God's will and of achieving something for him. Faith, love, and hope are the secrets of being in God's will. How many of you have ever asked yourself or asked a friend, how do I know I'm in God's will? How do I know that I'm living where he wants me to live? Uh, I've asked that question. I don't know about you. Often, I want to know. I don't want to be out there and God's doing something here and I'm on a tangent to what he's doing. God wants us to know. And those three keys, those three things are the keys to knowing that we are in his will. Why why is that so? Because first of all, let's take faith because it comes first. Faith is the thing that saves us. When we put our trust in Jesus Christ, what he has done, we are justified. And so faith is the first thing that activates in our lives and it allows us to enter into this amazing relationship with Jesus Christ. It gives us that covering of righteousness that when God looks on us, he smiles with pleasure because he says, you are not condemned. You are not uh, under judgment. The judgment has come on my son, and you may walk free as my children. Isn't that amazing? Faith brings us right into the center of God's will. We become his children when we justify by faith. But I want to say, to keep walking in, in that sense of his pleasure also requires faith. Faith has to be applied a thousand times. <laughs> I don't know how often in a day, but thousands of times in our lives, faith has to continue being applied over and over again. When you face opposition, faith helps you to carry on believing. When you're not sure and you see all the weaknesses in yourself and maybe in your friend or your husband or your wife, faith helps you to carry on believing. Faith is there to help us persevere in God's work for us. Amidst delays, faith is there to help you carry on believing. Faith is key to keeping us in the will and the center of God's purpose. Faith is what keeps our eyes on God. But then Paul also says he commends these Christians in Colossae for their love. And you know, this, the Colossians, they were famous for their loving everybody. It says, I thank God for your love for all the saints. Isn't it so easy sometimes that we pick and choose which saints we like to love? Well, I like those guys because they're a bit like me. Or I like them because they've got a good sense of humor. Or I like, no, but 
they, had a fam- they were famous because they loved the whole body. They loved all the saints. It's very easy to love some of the saints. But something very special has happened to us when we love all the saints. When we love the black backslidden. When we love the poor. When we love the uneducated. When we love the irritating. When we love the hostile. When we love the insincere. When we love the offended or the offensive brother or sister. Something amazing has happened. It's called a revival. Something of the gospel taking root in our hearts. And that's the gospel that produced faith to keep persevering. It produced love that could love everyone. It's very interesting how Paul puts it. He says that we've heard of your faith and the love you've had because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. You have this love and you have this faith because underpinning it is a hope that is stored up for you in heaven. I think that's very interesting. Faith and love are inspired by hope. And I want to just wrestle a bit with this word hope this morning. And that's what I, I hope God brings you a sense of deposit this morning in, our, in your lives and in my life. Uh, this has been, I had such a funny joke with, with Chrissy this week. She says, is the prophetic uh, what is it? Is it annoying or anointed? And I have to say, this week I find it quite annoying because it's been challenging me and I've been wrestling. But there's a wonderful sense that when God allows us to be annoyed, I hope I annoy some of you this morning. Okay? I hope I do offend some of you this morning because there may be the work of God. It's like that little grain of sand in the oyster and a pearl of great price is being formed in you. You know what, if we always have nice, easy things coming into our lives and we never allow ourselves to be challenged, then we never grow into precious pearls. But God wants to come and let us wrestle with some things so we can grow and he can say what a pearl of great price we are to him, which we are already. But I also, I want to say that when hope inspires faith and love, we need to understand what this word hope really means. And I want to say, I want to almost rephrase it as sense of purpose. That this church had a sense of purpose that infused their love and their faith. The Colossian believers were filled with an expectation for glory and reward one day on the last day. They knew that the end of their lives was going to have a wonderful sense of glory and reward. They understood that their present faith and love was linked to a future glory and reward, and that's why they pressed on. You know, what is it that keeps you when you're going through a tough time? What is it that keeps you persevering? What is it? What is it that makes you get out of bed every morning? What is it, and I've had times like this in my life when I've been so depressed that I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. What did I not have that made it hard for me to get out of bed? It's called hope. And hope helps you to persevere. Hope is the thing that gives you faith to persevere. James 1 verse 12 said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, 
which God has promised to those who love him. It's a hope stored up for us in heaven. There's something waiting there for us, my brothers and sisters. There's something waiting that is beyond this life of the here and now. And I want to say that hope and a sense of purpose is a thing that also keeps us persevering in our love for one another. It's a thing that says, no, I am going to forgive I'm going to find the grace for this relationship. I am going to to just go that extra mile because there's something bigger than just here and now that I'm living for. There's something greater. There's a real reward. And I do, that sort of make me ask this question while I've been preparing. I've been thinking, why is it that so few Christians today have any real hope? Why is it that so few Christians have any real sense of purpose that just motivates them and, and leads them into all that God has for them? I think that sometimes most believers have something that more resembles a wishful thinking and a desperateness about their lives. And I want to say, I think that it's because of the kind of gospel that we've had preached in the world today. And I believe that true revival comes when the true gospel is preached. And true hope comes when a true gospel is preached. And we have such insipid hope. We have such inane purpose in our lives because we have not heard the true gospel. The gospel that brings us true hope. That our lives are not just this here and now. But it's about eternity. This Christian gospel was taken to the Colossian church by Epaphras, with a warning to the Colossians that there's not much hope in this world. Right from the beginning, when they first heard the gospel, something was put into their hearts that there is not much hope in this world. You will not find your life's purpose in this world. That is the gospel that brings revival, because we live from a different place. You know, when the gospel first comes to us, it's like we are steeped in dependencies and securities and coping mechanisms and a sense of self-significance that's not in God, it's in the world and in the systems of this world. Uh, and that can be any uh, different things for different people. It could be money. It could be owning a house. I mean, how many of you, one day, when you, as a young person, you're told, okay, when I get to this age, I've got to have so much money, and I've got to buy a house. Then I've kind of made it somewhere in my life. Or maybe it's education, or a job, or friends, or our associations, or our skills and prowess, or titles, or success, or beauty, or just doing good things. All of those things somehow feed our sense of significance. But right from the beginning, the Colossians learned that the gospel freed them from those values, freed them from a worldly value system. And I want to ask today, how much of our gospel that is preached is with a little addition on the side. It's like we go to a restaurant and we say, can I have steak, please? Plus some chips on the side. And we want the gospel plus some chips on the side. And I believe God is saying, I want you to get back to the gospel. It's not the gospel plus 
six steps to self-esteem. It's not the gospel plus name and claim my new car and my next overseas holiday. It's not the gospel plus life insurance and a secure pension. Is that wrong? No. It's not, I'm not saying these things are wrong. But that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel plus middle class aspirations. We don't come to the cross because then I can have a nice job and a nice house and have all my needs met. That is not the gospel. How do you preach a gospel like that to people in India who have nothing? Our hope, our purpose in our lives is not here. It's something much bigger than here and now. It's not the gospel plus a slick performance on a Sunday. We are not playing at church. We are not, I felt like God says sometimes we can play dollies, we can dress up dollies and make our dollies nice. Church is not dressing up dolls. Church is the real nitty-gritty of our lives, counting for God. It's allowing him to come in and to change us so we can go out and impact and be the white paint on the landscape of the world that he's called us to be a part of. I want to say today, it is not only unbelievers that are steeped in false hopes and false purposes, but it's the church. The church is steeped in a false sense of purpose. And I believe that this financial crisis that the world is in is about God shaking and waking up believers to see where their hope really is. To see what is it that is really driving us. When you lose your job, when you no longer get the salary and you can't have the same lifestyle as you normally have, what is it that is really motivating you? What is it? And I'm, those are things I ask myself. No, our end, our hope, our purpose is in the world to come. This is the true gospel. I say it again, are any of those things bad, you might be asking? Maybe it's just a little bit of sand in your oyster this morning. No, not in themselves. Those things are not bad. But yes, in every way they are bad when they become your goal and purpose in life. In every way. Because we start living like chickens digging and scratching in the sand when we call to be eagles soaring in the sky. We are running after the things that the world runs after. And God says, I've called you to such great high purpose. I've called you to many things that are beyond here, but you can't even see them because you are down in the sand like a chicken scrapping around for little bits of corn. I've called you to great and noble things, says the Lord. I do believe that depression comes when you lose your, your hope. It says hope deferred makes a heart grow sick. I do believe depression comes when you don't know what your purpose in life is. And you think, God, what am I about? And what is this all for? But I want to say, if you've been feeling down because of that, I want to say, be of good cheer. Because God is just stripping away false purpose. He's stripping away false hope. Because he's got something amazing for you. The Bible says you can't even conceive how amazing it is. That's how amazing it is. That he is storing up for you. It's waiting for you at the end of the race. You know, I don't know of any races that are run or marathons that are run where you get the prize halfway. 
You know, okay, there's a halfway prize and there's a three-quarter way prize. And when you get to end, there's the really big prize. God has the big prize for us in heaven one day. I think that we live like this. This is our lives. And sometimes, and that's eternity to the wall and forever. But we live like our lives are like this big and eternity is this big. Actually, our lives are this big and eternity goes on forever. And we live like this is all that counts. But God is saying, no, this is the door to this. You know that wonderful parable where it says, be faithful with ten talents and I will make, give you in charge of ten cities. I think that God is saying, yes, I will give you authority here on earth. I think something of that crown of life is our authority when we break through and we persevere here on earth. God does give us authority on earth. But I want to say we have no imagine, we can't imagine what he's got stored up for us in heaven. That little five talents that he's given you, those giftings that he's put into you, that you're being faithful with and you bringing fruitfulness in your life. He's got five cities for you to reign and look after in heaven one day. We think it's all about here and now. He has got amazing things that we don't even know that he's stored up for us in heaven. It's waiting there for us. Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven. Don't you one day want to hear your father say, well done, good and faithful servant. That must be our purpose. Well done. Well done, Glenn. Well done that you persevered in the things I put on your heart. Well done, my son. I don't know of anyone who here who doesn't love their parents, or maybe you have a good relationship with your parents, or maybe it wasn't good, but to hear your mom or dad say to you, well done, I'm so proud of you. How much more one day when our Heavenly Father says, Oh, my, my son, my daughter, oh, you make my heart glad. You make my heart glad. In verse 12, it says, Paul speaks again about this hope laid up for them in heaven. He says, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Whenever the Bible speaks of this word inheritance, over and over, both in the New Testament and in the the Old Testament, it's a word that's used for the end product, the final reward, the final result of the life of a believer is our inheritance. It's uh, what we get as a result of faith and patience. That's what Hebrews is about. Those who through faith and patience inherited what God had promised. It's the thing that comes, that we, as we persevere in it, we receive it. But uh, inheritance is not the same as our initial salvation, because it says we are guaranteed an inheritance. When we get saved, when you come to the Lord and he justifies you and he cleanses you, that's your ticket to get your inheritance. That's what guarantees you are going to get an inheritance. You are saved, but your salvation is sure. And he says, now, you carry on now. You have, apply faith, apply perseverance, apply patience. And when you die one day, when you get to the other side and you come into my kingdom and the fullness of my kingdom, you hand in your tickets and you're guaranteed of an inheritance because you're my child. You get into heaven. 
But it also says in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the part we don't really like, 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You know that it is possible uh, for us to be saved, but not to have the full reward and inheritance that God has for us. Because it's true that, that if we have a lack of belief and we have impatience, we can lose the fullness of the rewards and the blessing that God wants to have us have. The warnings in Scripture are not about us losing our justification. They're not about us losing our new birth. They're not about us losing our sonship. Even here on earth, evil fathers and mothers do not, of natural instinct, deny their, their children. I find it absurd to think that we would think that if we are born anew by the Spirit, that God will one day say, I don't, I don't know you when I gave birth to you. But will he say, my son, I gave birth to you in the Spirit, but look how you've squandered your life. Look at the choices you've made. I have this stored up for you, but I cannot give you responsibility over these 10 cities that I had planned for you. I'm afraid, my son, it might just be one city for you one day. Is this sand in your oyster? I just believe that God is saying that he's calling us to live a life worthy of the children of God, a life worthy of the calling. Reward is not automatic. It is possible to be saved and to lose our reward. I want to say when the true gospel is preached, when revival comes, we won't be worried about what kind of car we drive or what kind of gear we have. We will be consumed with a love for the broken, the poor, the disenfranchised in this community. And I believe God is already beginning. I've seen, I've seen in people's hearts, God is already beginning to stir a compassion for the poor. I see it in people. There's just like the stirring of God because the gospel's come. The gospel's starting to take root. We're no longer living for me, 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 me. Or like those penguins in finding me, find, what? Finding me, mine, mine, mine. Gods, are they seagulls? Oh, you're giving the story mixed up. The gospel, it says, was bearing fruit with power. God is going to do that. God is doing that. Let's remember Jesus' words. He said, seek first my kingdom, and then all these things will be added unto you. But somehow we, in our lack of faith, seek after all these things that must be added unto us. And, oh, by the way, what's your kingdom about? God is saying, seek my kingdom. Let that be your consuming delight. Let it be your joy. I will take care of your needs. And you know what? I was also thinking, most of my needs are just things I want. I don't really need them when it comes down to the nitty-gritty. Let's not become like the world. Jesus said, what good is salt if it loses its saltiness? What good is it if I'm with my unsaved friends and I have the same aspirations, the same goals, 
the same motivations as them. What do I have to offer them? But if I have to say to them, there's something more to this world than just here and now. There's something greater to live for. To live for the commendation of God one day when he entrusts you with things that you can't imagine. Don't think that this life is all that there is. An amazing opportunity on Wednesday to go into one of the high schools in Harpenden, and we were teaching the children on heaven and hell and asking them what they understood as heaven and hell. Do you know how many children said to me, and I was just asking them casually, they said, I said, what do you think happens after death? And a few of them said to me, I don't know what happens, but I sure wish there is something. I hope there's something. They didn't know what there was, but they hoped there was something more than this life. We, we already have that certainty. We have a hope. Let the gospel infuse you with a new purpose. Let the gospel take you from living in this mundane place, from living for yourself, from living for just your family, to living for those people that God wants to put you with his finger and paint with white paints. And you know, this is not compulsion. This is not, oh, geez, I have to go do this because it's being preached. No, this is as we hear the gospel. It comes and transforms us by the power of the Spirit. That's a section I haven't even begun to preach on. I've just preached on the gospel. Two ingredients, the power of the Spirit and the gospel bring revival. And maybe that's someone else can pick up on that. But I see that happening already. I see the Holy Spirit coming, and he's just bubbling up in people. He's coming to bring power. He's coming to bring change. I don't know about you, but I think that there's more. There's so much more than what we have now. Thank you, God, for the shakings. Thank you, God, for the unsettlings in my life. Thank you for stripping away from me those things that I thought were important, but actually, what are they all about anyway? Because there's something greater that you've called me and us to live for. God is doing a deep work. He's doing something. I was thinking um, when I helped at uh, Building Blocks, Laura did this little lesson on the don't build your house on the sandy land and keep your house on the rock. And I kind of stuck it on my sermon notes. And it reminded me of this, maybe it's a bit of a cheesy song and then I'll regret that I sang it. But it's one of those children's songs that says, don't build your house on the sandy land. Don't build it too near the shore. Well, it might look kind of nice, but you'll have to build it twice. So you'll have to build your house once more. You better build your house upon the rock, rock, rock. Make a good foundation on a solid spot. Well, the storms may come and go, but the peace of God you will know. And I just want to say this morning, build your house on the rock. Jesus said, what is the rock? He who hears my words and puts them into action. Let's not go away this morning and say, nice sermon. Let that sand irritate your oyster. Wrestle with God. Let him come and put his finger on some things in your life that are just false hopes, false purposes, because revival is coming. Those things are going to be stripped away whether we like it or not. Let's cooperate with God. Let's let him come and do a deep work in our hearts so we can live for something bigger. To hear our Father say, Well done, good and faithful servant.